0: Advisory to those who are not animal lovers, open to new ideas or interested in integrative holistic healthcare for your pets and believe that prescription diet is the best food for your pet. This podcast may offend your sensibilities. Have you ever felt frustrated and helpless after listening and doing everything your vet told you to do But it only made your sick pet worse and not get any better? Vets me in 2008 with my first adopted cat, Meow I did everything the vet told me to do And I realised she wasn't getting any better and only worse So I decided to look into alternative health options and was drawn to the stories of holistic pet service entrepreneurs and their transformative journey, overcoming obstacles, chasing their passion and creating a movement that has caused a ripple effect of positive change in the lives of their clients and pets around the world. Join me as I share the raw, inspiring journeys of these amazing entrepreneurs, their successes and failures. My name is Amrys Wang, and this is The Raw Entrepreneur. Good morning, everyone. This is Amrys Wang of The Raw Entrepreneur. Today's episode is part two of Daniel Rego's interview. Daniel Arrego is a well-known and respected advocate among the fresh feeding community for his work at Keto Pet Sanctuary and contribution to the dog cancer series. This is his story.
1: So one of the things that interests me tremendously are the economics of pet food. Uh, because, you know, somebody may get the idea, okay, I see it, I see it. Yes, I'm, I'm going to move to feeding my dog fresh food holy smokes, this costs a lot more, right? Okay, okay, I see it, I see it. I, I really need to start getting my dog titers to make sure that we're not over-vaccinating. I need to, to take some baseline imaging so I, I can see what the internal health of my dog, oh my God, I, I didn't know an MRI cost $2,500. So you, we've done one thing, right? You've done one thing, which is to start a conversation. Very important. That's how you get the education and the knowledge. How do you move from the knowledge to the practical application? Because there's a cost to that. And you know, for people who have uh, unlimited funds or who have discretionary funds, they can absorb those costs pretty readily. But for people who don't or for people who are on their way to having them but don't, but don't quite possess them to the degree that they want, there, there are some hard choices to make based on economic limitations. And so this, this is one of the things, in fact, uh, Dr. Karen Becker and, and Habib have, have actually tackled some of these things in, uh, the, 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 various, um, Facebook lives that they've done discussing, you know, how can you feed a fresh food diet or a partially fresh food diet and do so within pretty strict, uh, economic parameters, right? It's not easy to do. It can be done. So that's of tremendous interest to me. Additionally, and I don't know if this phenomenon has occurred where you are, but in America, within the last eh, eight years or so, um, pet health insurance has started to become a business. And today, it's, it's not useful in every way that you want. Just, just like insurance for people is oftentimes not as useful in every way that you might want. It's certainly better than not having it in many instances, and it can lower the economic burden, not in all instances, but in some instances of dealing with illness in uh, a companion animal. Okay, those are very positive developments. The question is, how can we amplify the effect of those developments? How can we improve them yet further? And how can we make pet ownership more economically viable for more people? Why? Because at the end of the day, you know, having a dog or a cat in your house is just awesome. Um, And there's very few. I mean, there are some people who could care less about it. But I, I would venture to say that they're in the minority. And I think there's a lot of people who would aspire to take care of a pet and own a pet, but oftentimes don't because they say, man, you know, that's just not in the budget. How do we bring change to that landscape? How do we make, uh, make it more affordable to care for a pet, both in terms of the daily nutrition and exercise, and also, you know, when it comes to their overall health and, and the costs that go along uh, with veterinary care? those things are of tremendous interest to me. Now, the great news is, is at least here in the United States, there's a lot of charitable institutions that contribute towards that. Um, but there's no, you know, national healthcare for dogs, right? There's no Medicare for dogs and cats. Um, and I don't suggest that that's necessarily a, a solution that everyone should get behind, but it's those types of ideas, which, can start a conversation that can lead to changes that can have a very positive impact, both for pets and pet owners.
0: Yeah, I I, I see what you mean. Because for me as a pet owner, plus I'm actually active as an animal welfare advocate. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I do rescue work. I do trap, neuter, return, manage. You know, I sterilize the stray cats in my in my area. You know, uh, so I work with a lot of rescue animals Yeah You know uh, So I have like 12 cats and one dog at home Oh wow <laughs> Yeah
1: You got a family
0: <laughs> I have Yes I have a mini farm uh, yes. I live in a flat Which is about Just under 800 square I think it's feet That is the Translation for you guys Yeah Under 800 square feet So I actually have to think about Environmental enrichment For For mm-hmm. For my cats Because when I started out I only adopted one cat You know 12 years Almost 13 years ago mm-hmm. And then when I started My my volunteer work And fostering and rescuing So you You know When you start that rescue You'll bring in you bring in another animal If you're lucky You rehome it If not They become a foster failure Or you know They get a PR ship yeah. You know uh, Until yeah. Until time for you To pack them up So I realized that I needed to catify my house Mm. because because I live in a small flat, you know, um, or apartment as you call it in the US, but over here we call it flat. And with cats and their behavior, it was very stressful when I started to have like three cats and one dog, um, shit, pee spray cat fight started to happen you know and i was trying to look for ways to improve the situation and there was one time when i thought oh i told my vet do i need to give them prozac or something cuz you know i'm not a fan of chemical drugs yeah. but it was it was getting to a point where i was like what the hell should i do you know how how can i how can i have some peace in in the house mm. and and um, that's when my journey into, you know, um, uh, learning and studying more and finding out more on, on the on the internet with, like, Jackson Galaxy and uh, Kate Benjamin, who are considered, like, the cat experts in the cat world when it comes to catification and cat behavior. Um, that's when I started to catify my house with a cat superhighway and everything. And I realized, you know, even though I feed them a raw food diet now, um, if I don't do environmental enrichment mm-hmm. For indoor cats only Because I don't let my cats roam Because I stay in a high-rise building So I stay on the 20th floor yeah. So I sort of cat-proof my house All my windows and everything So they can't do kamikaze And fall out of the window <laughs> You know uh, But They You know It's like For a lot of A lot of pet parents The cost Of being a Responsible Air quotes Pet parent What is a responsible Pet parent What is a good Pet parent You know For a lot of them For some people They They don't know that You know And then when you Talk about catification For instance Like My place I actually Specially custom built you know, highways in my home for them and, and cat shelves and stuff. You know, people come and the, they, they're like, wow, how much did that cost you? You know, I was like, well, I gave up a holiday. <laughs> I had a I was planning to go to the UK for a holiday and I decided not to go for the holiday. And I started, you know, decided to invest. But a, not everyone is willing to, as you say, have the budget mm. or budget, you know, the cost. And and feeding and my interest is in in i work with a lot of low income families you know uh, to help them out with sterilization and most of the time you know i'll ask them you know what are you feeding and normally they're feeding kibble because that's the best that they can offer yeah and you know and i have to thank you dr karen becker and rodney i mean all of you guys are like pioneers in what you've do, been doing because if it wasn't for the work that you do you know that you've done on like the concept of just changing up the diet freshening up the bowl for instance you know that that very famous formula of like if you feed a bowl of kibble and you take out 20% and you put in 20% of fresh vegetables you know that will make a huge difference in in say your dogs your dog's health you know um i have to thank you guys because If it wasn't for the work that you guys have been pioneering And pushing and educating I would not have been able to help the low-income families That I work with in trying to reduce their vet bills Because they can't afford vet bills, number one They can't even afford to sterilize their cats You know, and being... I think you might Probably have the same thing In, in, in the US Because I think It's an economic thing they, they might not have The economic means But they love animals And they just bring home You know A stray Injured stray But they don't sterilize And then suddenly They become hoarders Because they don't yeah. Do population control And because they don't have The money They feed crappy food Or low quality food So you get a lot of sickness mm-hmm. And disease yeah. Within you know These hoarder cases So It's thanks to you guys that I've been able to reach out and teach these these families how to even just freshen up by sharing their meal prep. So, you know, one of the questions I say, like, do you cook at home? If you cook at home, that helps because you can share your food with your dog or your cat. Or, you know, the concept of bone broth With a lot of them, they won't understand the concept of bone broth they, You know, it's like, even if like I was to try and translate that And my Mandarin isn't very good But I would just tell them chicken soup Or I talk to the Malays Because I don't speak Malay But I would just tell them like, you know, like chicken soup And they go like, oh, okay You know, so I would teach them like, oh, you can do this Don't, don't add garlic yet or onions But you can share, you know So it's thanks to people like you that have made a h- profound impact on the way I do things here locally, you know, and I just wanted to take this opportunity to, to thank you personally because uh, you've been actually one of my idols for a very, very long time <laughs> I I have admired your work for, for a very, very long time um, you know, and what, what you do for companion animals over there, you know, I've been trying to like find ways to translate that local in local terms, you know, and especially for the lower income people because they can't afford vet bills. They, you know, we already subsidize, we provide free sterilization for them, you mm-hmm. know, uh though we do try to tell them like if you can pay ten dollars for transport, that would help. Because right. it's not so much the monetary contribution, it's more the psychological effect of they have some skin in the game.
1: Yes. They for have sure.
0: they have they're invested in in the in the welfare of their animal and it gives them pride it's really surprising because i have some low-income pet parents and sometimes the parents might not be interested but the children are and the children will actually come forward you know and these and these are kids we were talking about less than 16 years old you know and they'll give it to me they say auntie auntie you know here here's ten dollars or five dollars my contribution you know for the transport and it and it touches me you know but you can see that they're so you know, um, it it fills them with a pride that they are, you know, that they are involved in the care of their animal. Yeah. You know, and and I realized because initially I felt bad, you know, like oh, should I take the money because they're not that well off? But then I realized if I charge them a little bit and they're willing to part with it for the sake of their animal, they tend to take better care. They are more mm. involved. Yeah, you know, it's it's yeah. a psychological thing. You know so like not so everything free is not a good idea <laughs> <laughs> that that's what that's what i sort of realized if you give everything free number one they don't pay attention if you pay something you pay attention you know uh that's that's something i i, I sort of realized so you know um trying you know trying to translate whatever you taught you know whatever that you guys are, are pushing you know on your educational platforms. Uh yeah, it's it's been it's been uh very helpful in what I do, even if it's just my local small community, my mm-hmm. neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, your your philosophies have actually helped improve the lives of of these uh, low income families and i just wanted to let you know that you, you are making an impact you know even if it's just a little small one in, in singapore
1: <laughs> but you know that that's where it all starts is is with collaboration and communication right i mean i was brought into this world mainly through that just meeting people and and becoming inspired by their interests and ultimately adopting their interests as my own and, and, and continuing the work. So, you know, this is, I think, I think what you're touching on here is actually really important because that collaboration extends to the community of pet parents themselves. And as they continue to grow and share this understanding and this knowledge, you know, you really do start to see the change. In fact, this is why, you know, the economic side is so interesting to me because you can see the effects of that change sometimes incrementally sometimes profoundly one good example is if you look at the economics of the pet food industry in the united states year over year for the last five years the fastest growth vertical is in fresh foods okay now it's a loaded term because there's lots of things that are included in fresh foods that aren't but if you table that caveat for a second um You start to see that, you know, this wasn't the case nine, 10 years ago. So in a very short period of time, having a conversation around fresh feeding has had an impact. Additionally, you also see it in the marketing because the marketing has shifted to emphasize concepts of freshness. Now the products themselves aren't fresh typically, but the marketing has shifted. And that's usually the first step. Particularly when you're, you know, you're talking about multinational billion-dollar corporations, they're slow to change. Uh, Why? Because they have legacy investments and a certain way of doing things. So trying something new is is usually not something they can do or as part of their business model. But when you see the marketing change, you wait a few more years and then you see the products slowly start to evolve. And you know, in the last two years, there's in this country there's been about a dozen companies that have small companies that have rushed into the fresh uh, feeding space and a good portion of them are still active and successful, which is hard to do because you're competing against large institutions and your product's much more expensive. So that tells you, it's not a a perfect barometer, but it tells you something about the impact that having these conversations has.
0: So... What, you know, if, if you were to speak to a low income family and they could only afford kibble, for instance, what would you suggest to them on how they can freshen up the bowl? You know, if they didn't have a, a, a lot of money, you know, what would you suggest that if they can just buy it like off the supermarket or a wet market, for instance, that they can do? What would you suggest?
1: Well, well the, the example you gave earlier is a phenomenal point of departure. And it, what is, you know, if so, if you, if you pour some kibble in a bowl and then you take some out and, and replace it with, say, some green beans, what have you done? What, what have you accomplished in real world terms? I mean, there's nothing magic about the green beans. In fact, they have very little impact on the dog uh, for two reasons. One, they're almost caloric; They're primarily fiber. Two, canines don't have sacculated colons. So their ability to get a butyrate producing effect from the fiber is limited in compared to humans. So what have you done? You cut calories or controlled calories. So, and, and, you know, there was a a very good anecdotal case and I I can't remember the name of the uh, doctor who did this. Uh, And he did it, I think for 60 days, which was quite a trial. Uh, but if you Google uh, the Twinkie diet, what did this guy do? He demonstrated that you can eat absolutely terrible food, primarily Twinkies, and lose, uh, lose body weight. Now, is this something that anybody should do? Probably not. But it makes a very interesting point, which is if you sufficiently control caloric intake, the type of food that you're eating doesn't matter, right? In other words, if the acute goal is to lose a certain amount of weight in a certain amount of time, of course the quality of the food that you eat matters over the over the long term. Um, it's, it's it's important to, to make that point. So w- what are you doing? Well, if you equate um, uh, pet you know kibble with Twinkies, and they're not that dissimilar. They're prime both primarily sugar. They're refortified. And they have a tremendous amount of preservatives in them. So they're, it's not an overstatement or an embellishment to, to make that analogy. If you're reducing the amount of that kibble significantly, then the insult that it would potentially give in excess is reduced dramatically. And also, if the budget is limited and you're feeding the animal less food, right? If you're controlling their calories uh, rigorously, you're also you know, the, the value of that spend on that food extends over time because you're able to, to, you know, feed from that bag for more, more time than if you fed your dog more at each interval, uh, at each feeding interval. So those techniques can be very appropriate for folks on a limited budget. Um, the other thing that, that one can think about is, and this is something that, uh, that, that I do, and, and I would presume this something like this might be available uh, where you are, is you can go to your butcher and you can say, hey, look, I am looking for close to expiration meats. These meats are still fresh, they're still in saleable condition, but they're going to expire very soon, which means they're cheaper. So if you're looking to feed your dog freshly, that's a very, very effective method of cutting the price sometimes in half and still being able to feed your dog uh, fresh
0: foods. <coughs> and how would, would that apply for cats as well? Absolutely, I mean, I mean cats, cats are
1: uh, obligate carnivores. The The idea that a cat would eat something that's not meat is a, is a steep hill to climb. Um, and, and if you look at cats response to like, Vegetables and carbohydrates. It's it's not great. Can they survive off it? Yeah, they can. Can they thrive off it? I think it's very difficult to make the argument that they thrive off.
0: So because that there's a fat, you know, with uh, vegan pet foods, for instance, you know, uh, in the in the pet food market, where you know they say like um, to to support or prevent animal cruelty. Uh, feed your animals, vegan pet food, you know, um, what is your, what is your take on that?
1: Well, that, that goes back into our bucket of thorny issues, right? (laughs) Um, but, but let's untangle, let's untangle them together. Um, and this is an issue you're, you're touching on something that here in the Los Angeles area is a big deal. People very much care about this. Um, and there's any number of big name dog food brands that, that sell a, a vegan product. So if we work backwards from, you know, our understanding that the dogs are primarily carnivores, cats are carnivores, then we can know if we accept that, then we know that feeding them carbohydrate wouldn't be appropriate right out of the gate. So whether the food is vegan, the, the kibble is vegan or not vegan, the preponderance of high carbohydrate in those foods makes them immediately not appropriate. Right. So that right there, you're you're back to to hopefully feeding, feeding the dog uh, a fresh fruit diet. Uh, If if you say, well, I don't want to feed my dog a fresh food diet because of the use of animal products. Then the question becomes, okay, how do I get my dog an appropriate balance of fats and proteins from non-animal sources? Who, very, very tough to do. It, it, can, it, can it be done? It actually can. Can it be done through the purchase of a commercial food? In all likelihood, not. So for example, if you were willing to go source uh, isolates, uh, protein isolates from plants, in other words, with a very, very low carb profile, and then go source uh, monounsaturated fats from plants that don't have any carbohydrate source in them. You could assemble something that could meet the, new, the, the normative nutritional requirements for a carnivore. It could be done. That would be incredibly time consuming and expensive to do. And as I mentioned before, the opportunity to achieve that through a commercial uh, vegan pet food purchase, is approaching zero. Maybe there's something out there, the likelihood that it would meet the same macronutrient profile as just feeding fresh, it would be very difficult to to find that. So these these are not unchallenging issues, you know, particularly if you care about the source uh, of food. Um, But that's, I, I would frame the issue in that way to at least give people an opportunity to think as rationally as they can about the topic because it's a loaded topic. People are very, very passionate about
0: it. Yeah, because I know of some some friends who are say vegetarian or vegan and the idea of handling physically handling raw food puts them off.
1: Mm. You know, the meat. Yeah.
0: You know, psychologically it puts them off. Yeah. So I have some friends who manage to to Go around the issue because they do. Well, the ones that I knew, luckily, they they sort of understand the 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 link between feeding a species appropriate diet mm-hmm. for your companion animals say cats or dogs. So you know, I I had to help um, help them find like a local commercial uh, raw food company mm-hmm. that minces the food, grinds it up, so they don't mm-hmm. actually physically see a foot right. or a thigh <laughs> yeah. or a, yeah. a head of a you know um that that kind of thing so it, it's easier for them to defrost and then dish it out you know um, I understand it's the, the yeah. less ick factor for them but i remember uh one of my vegetarian girlfriends she actually um texted me and said like hey someone gave me some duck feet. i can't handle it It you know when I when I see when I see the you know the, the duck feet and and then someone gave her like some quail, you know like baby quail, whole yeah. baby quail. Um, psychologically, she said it was too much. She couldn't feed a cat, so she said like, "Can I give it to you?" You know, uh, knowing that I didn't have that that problem, so I said, "Yeah, sure." You know, so I realized like for some people, who who have this raw. This issue with handling raw Physically seeing raw uh, The presentation of the food uh, Commercially helps them You know, overcome that barrier So for them Feeding like almost like a bath diet Or ground up Everything ground up mm-hmm. um, is easier for them to serve than say um, As some people Call it like a DIY Frankenprey kind of diet Where you right. sort of mix and match Buffet style you know, um
1: yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, it's all psychological actually. I think a, 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 lot, a lot of things that we touched on today for the human pet parent, it's it's all about overcoming your you like the perception,
1: mm. you
0: know, how you look at things, um, how do you justify it in your brain, how do you accept, you know, um the, the paradigm shift in, in changing your attitude towards. Um, say a commercial kibble diet Versus trying to even feed a, a fresh food diet You know, for some people it, It's easy, like you said If they're already into health And nutrition mm-hmm. for themselves When you explain it to them The light bulb moment comes on for them But for those who feed And this is what I notice When I do adoptions Is that um, My potential adopters Who Adopt from me I would normally you know Encourage them to feed a fresh food diet That's one of my conditions because I'm already A raw feeder and I feed raw So I said like are you able to do that So I usually do an education thing and I realized just not meaning To but I Sort of see a pattern right. of The ones that actually do finally agree To adopt from me are the ones Who are already more health Conscious Who personally aspire to better health for themselves. So they're looking into better food, nutrition, mm-hmm. lifestyle choices, exercise. So <clears throat> the ones that adopt from me are already on that path. Mm-hmm. So when you explain the benefits of raw, you know, fresh food feeding and exercise and, you know, how how to optimize health for, to and I always go by the angle reducing vet bills because mm-hmm. it for human beings, it's always dollars and cents. Sometimes it's not, it's not so much the aspirational goals But sure. practical goals You know, where you say like um, You might spend a little bit more On the food But the long-term benefits is that You spend less on uh, Vet bills And as you were talking about pet insurance We do have some pet insurance Companies in Singapore mm. But they're not very popular still uh, Number yeah. one Is like you said you know, the the offering, the coverage that they have Might, you know, might not be everything And for a lot of people The concept of paying for your pet's insurance Is still quite a novelty, you know For myself personally, I've not done it Because I'm mainly a rescuer And unfortunately, pet insurance does not cover rescue animals They cover pet com- Like true blue companion animals They don't cover rescue work So a lot... A lot, of, a lot of my rescue friends don't mm-hmm. do not do pet insurance because number one, it's a waste of money to them. Even for me, yeah. you yeah. know, um, I'm not covered because they don't recognize the, the rescues as, yeah, it's, it's a different category. Unless you say like, oh, this is my adopted pet cat, my pet dog, and then you give the so-called history. You know, they could have Ooh. been adopted from a shelter. It doesn't matter, but you have to have ownership of the pet where it's like if you're in the rescue community you're doing fostering work there is no pet insurance coverage for that so we still have to pay for vet bills you know cash (laughs) yeah yeah that 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 is something that is uh different yeah for over here but yeah you have you have you know like like a lot of a lot of things. This conversation that we've been having, a lot of topics that we touched on. It's a lot of, a lot of food for thought. A lot of uh you know thinking involved in in terms of like, you know how how we should look at things. And I and I, I find you very interesting because you're not a vet. Are you a doctorate of anything? I'm sorry, no, not no, from being you no. Know-
1: most of my education in in this field has come informally. Um, And any advantage that I've had is really by being in proximity to people who do hold those uh, professional and and medical degrees in the space. And so I I attribute most of my learning to just being around them um, and being in the privileged position of being able to interact with them Uh, And then, you know, we live in a time where access to the scientific literature is literally at arm's length. And, you know, that I I remember as a a kid, that was not the case. If you didn't didn't have the periodical in your hand, you just didn't know. (laughs) You couldn't read it. Um, That's not the case today. So our ability to access the, the basic science when it comes to metabolism, when it comes to disease pathology... Uh, and to also get what I, what I like to call for myself, the remedial education, right? If you, if you don't know uh, what uh, AMPK means, well, you can look it up. And there's, you know, many people who have fantastic and interesting things to say um, about adenosine monophosphate uh, protein kinase or, or mTOR, you know, these terms which are very relevant to, to metabolism. So the ability to you know, very quickly um, get to a place where not only can you access uh, the scientific literature and hear what people have to say about it, but actually get to a place where the terminology, the root concepts, those things are learnable without having to go get uh, a medical degree. Now, of course, it's, 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 not a, uh, it's not a substitute for professional degrees by any stretch, But it is a way to become included in the conversation. And these things are, for me, they're just never boring. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They're so interesting. They're so fascinating. They're so engaging. And they so capture my thoughts. Uh, I can't help but not look into it. Uh, And so that's really been my process, you know, out over the last seven or eight years. And it continues because... The, uh, it's it's a little bit of a slippery slope. And what I mean by that is once you start getting into these things, it starts to become apparent how much you don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, and part of that is scary. And part of that is actually really exciting because it means there's lots of things to learn and invariably they're fascinating. You know, uh,
0: one of the things that I think a lot of people, you know, Remember you four Is in the dog cancer series The documentary series oh, um, yeah, yes. That was that was produced by um, Done by Dr. Karen Becker And Rodney Habib I um, I I've got those DVDs I, I love it I even gave one copy to my vet I honestly don't know if My vet actually watched it To be honest <laughs> You know But I gave it to her To sort of try and educate her And I said you know Share it with your Your vet partners as well yeah. You know and um, for that documentary The dog cancer series It it focused a lot on Using a keto diet mm-hmm. A raw keto diet To help manage cancer Within dogs Do you think you could give a General uh, One-on-one overview for, for pet parents Who are listening in Who might not know what this is Sure
1: So Cancer is such an interesting landscape because, you know, I don't know anybody who hasn't been touched by cancer in their own families or in regards to their their pets, um, and so it's it's an issue. I, I think it's now the statistic is very close to one in two dogs will get cancer during their lifetime. Um, th- this is a big deal, and um, if you if you look at the history of, uh, cancer research, there's two camps, uh, that, that have ideas about what causes cancer and both of the ideas not only have merit, but there's a tremendous body of scientific work behind them. Probably the most commonly known one is the somatic theory of cancer or the idea that cancer comes from an aberration in our genetics. And there's quite a bit of evidence that, that demonstrates that. The question becomes, is that, uh, is that a generative effect or a downline effect, but we'll, we'll come back to that. The, the other idea about cancer, which is probably less well-known, um, but for which there's a tremendous body of scientific evidence is the metabolic theory of cancer, which, uh, doesn't look at the, uh, the, the dysregulation in protein folding in the nucleus of the cell but looks at the dysregulation in metabolism of the cell, specifically in the mitochondria of the cell, which exists outside the nucleus. Um, Why is this important? Well, as we, you know, if we go back to our uh, eighth grade biology class, we know that our mitochondria uh, make energy in the cell, right? So when we consume food, it's broken down inside the cell, and the mitochondria put out these uh, ATPs, these units of energy, the adenosine, uh, triphosphate um, uh, molecules. And so, what the metabolic theory of cancer shows or demonstrates is that when mitochondrial function begins to fail, you start to see the presentation of disease pathologies. And here's where things get interesting it's not just cancer, it's obesity, it's diabetes, uh, it's uh, cognitive decline, cardiac disease, and yes, also cancer. So this brings up a a very interesting consideration about metabolism itself in two respects. One is, is that when, uh, when the mitochondria in a cell begin to fail in their function to produce energy correctly, the cell transforms into a cancerous cell. Okay. And that metabolism changes from a form of metabolism that relies primarily on oxygen to one that relies on fermentation, which is sort of a fancy way of you go from oxygen metabolism to sugar metabolism, right? Fermentation is essentially uh, relying on glucose as the primary fuel substrate for creating energy for the cell. And this is a hallmark of just about any cancerous cell. And so the reason why the ketogenic diet has a role to play in this regard really is twofold. One is, is that by eliminating foods that insult cell metabolism, in other words, your typical high carbohydrate uh, heat processed sugar pellet, which is essentially a, a dog or a cat, a kibble, and introducing a fresh food diet that's species appropriate, that also lowers the threshold of available glucose, you end up doing two things. One is you remove the insult. And two is you induce a state of metabolism that lowers the primary fuel substrate for cancer, which is glucose or sugar or carbohydrate, however you want to characterize it. So this this has been well understood, gosh, now almost 100 years. Um, So it's not not new. It's not actually particularly novel. Um, It's become... A more popular conversation because there's a lot of cosmetic and cognitive effects in humans. Uh, pardon me, that occur when the when a person uh, consumes a ketogenic diet. So, for example, people will lose fat mass. That, that's a favorable cosmetic appearance. Uh, additionally, they tend to notice that their brain feels great, that their thinking is clearer. So. People, particularly in this country, have found that a ketogenic diet is very good uh, for those cosmetic effects. Additionally, people can see in very short order, particularly people who have metabolic syndrome, who have diabetes, that a ketogenic diet corrects those disease pathologies. In turn, you can see that in dogs as well. Dogs that, you know, dogs do get diabetes. Um, And when you correct uh, the food inputs, you see the blood markers change dramatically right? Insulin lowers, glucose lowers, ghrelin and leptin levels uh, normalize. Uh, Their A1C becomes normal. Their hemoglobin A1C becomes normal. So the effects that we see in uh, humans, we see very similar effects in dogs. Additionally, for dogs that have seizures, a ketogenic diet can oftentimes produce the same effects that it does uh, in children uh, who have epilepsy. And so that is why there's been, I would say, a a popularization of the ketogenic diet, both as pertains to humans uh, and pertains to dogs. And then there's a whole conversation about, you know, precisely how you tune it uh, to act as an intervention against cancer. That's a little bit more uh, complex, but if you think about it in evolutionary terms, dogs were eating a form of a ketogenic diet Uh, for many, many thousands of years to the extent that sometimes you get some food, eat all of it. Then you don't have food for a while. What happens? Your body moves out of sugar metabolism and goes into ketone metabolism for the period of time that you don't have food. So there's lots of ways to induce ketosis. You can do do it by controlling calories. You can do it by controlling macronutrients. You can do it by controlling the interval of time uh, between meals.
0: So, like you said, the keto diet is now becoming quite a fad, both for humans and for yeah. companion animals. Yeah. Now, is there a downside to when it's a fad? Because people think that they should have it for life. You know, um, to you know, is it? I mean, there's people who say you shouldn't be in ketosis all the time. You have to cycle in and out, as per your dog cancer series documentary. You 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 know, you talked about cycling in and mm-hmm. out of ketosis so that actually to me means that you shouldn't be on a keto diet 24 7 all the time you have to there's a there's a like a cut-off date that you should cycle off it how long should that be
1: well it really depends on what the goal set is right uh i, I know it, there's a couple of folks uh, a couple of physicians i know who remained in ketosis for two years wow they were, great uh, I don't know anybody that's kept a dog in ketosis longer than a year. Uh, so that, and, you know, these are all, these are all anecdotal cases. So it's, it's hard to say everything you might want to about them, but the idea that somehow sustained ketosis, uh, in and of itself could be harmful. I, I think is, it would be tough, uh, tough to maintain, but, but maybe there's instances where you could show, uh, that, that, that it is harmful but the advantages of cycling in and out of ketosis is that you can do other things, right? So for example, your only goal may not be metabolic health. Your goal may be to increase muscle mass. Well, it's really helpful if you have an excess of protein to do that. Consuming an excess of protein is going to take you out of ketosis. So Mm -hmm. it it really depends on what's the goal set here. For example, There, there might be other goal sets, but particularly as it comes, you know, for humans, you know, eating donuts is fantastic. They're delicious and they're sugary and they're delightful. So sometimes somebody just may want to enjoy a donut and that may be a good enough reason to cycle out of ketosis. So it, it really depends on what the goal set is, you know, and the same thing could be for a dog, you know, maybe feeding a dog macaroni and cheese every day is not the best idea, but, you know, once a year is probably okay. And giving your dog a treat like that, um, you know, may be as enjoyable for you as it is for them. So there, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why you might want to cycle out of ketosis. Um, and again, I think they just track back to what are your objectives? What are your goals? And ultimately, what do you, what do you want to do with metabolism? There's lots of reasons to induce uh, ketosis uh, metabolically, not the least of which is it can have profound effects on immune function, can have profound effects on body composition uh, and on uh, mental performance. Those are great goal signs. Ketosis is not the only way to achieve those things. So these are really decisions I think that center around what the focus is for a given period of time and ultimately what the target is that you're trying to hit by controlling metabolism one way or another.
0: Hmm. Interesting, because you know, especially for humans, there's all sorts of diet fats through mm-hmm. through through this, especially this last five hundred over years or fifty years, for instance, so many different diet fats that's been for you know our human uh, need to look good, lose weight, you know, feel fantastic. Um, so I've always viewed dieting as a fad. It's not a lifestyle, mm-hmm. and but one thing when I was looking into the keto diet, it's I I was like looking into you know like our ancestors were more what what do you call it hunter and gatherers. So in the old days, you know, when we didn't have all this, there'll be there'll be seasons. There'll be different seasons in. On the planet mm-hmm. So you'll have, you'll have uh, seasons of plenty And then seasons of not plenty You know, because of prey or food or plants um, So would you say that the keto diet Actually sort of falls into one of those seasons?
1: I mean, potentially, you know th- I mean, and now you're getting
0: into th- th- Some really
1: interesting areas of, of, uh, of anthropology and where, you know, various, you know, groups of homo sapiens lived on the planet at different times would be determinative of that. You know, um, if you you look at the history, one of of the ways to kind of think about this that, that, that perhaps could be helpful is if you look over the last, you know, several million years, really in the last two million years, even before the advent of fire, there was a pretty dramatic increase in brain size as a result in humans, uh, as a result of uh having a preponderance of animal meats. That that had a a, a big dramatic increase. Then you got fire, which added a heat process to these meats, which made them more bioavailable, which then you had another big jump in brain size. Okay. Now, if these meats were being acquired, say, somewhere along the equator, you might also have access to seasonal fruits. So a higher carbohydrate, higher sugar. diet. But if you had access to a preponderance of meats in northern climates, maybe there was no fruits. So, you know, there are some variations in in those respects. But where things get really interesting is really in the last, I would say 50 to 70,000 years, when Homo sapiens acquired the language faculty right and in, in other words when we went from being just about like every other primate to being able to do this kind of introspection self-reflection and communication that other animals just really can't do like we do that from that period to about 10,000 years ago when you, when agriculture came in and humans actually had the ability to sort of be in one place and eat a high carbohydrate diet, that period of time is probably most representative of what constitutes uh, an optimal nutritional plan for uh, humans. It's gonna be primarily meat based, maybe with some uh, low carbohydrate fibers and some seasonal high sugar additions in the form of fruits. That's probably most representative of what the most recent period of evolution for us is. I think this a similar story could be said about dogs, right? Dogs from within the last 50,000 years really only had access to uh, animal meats, maybe with some variation if they were somehow connected to human tribes, Maybe they got some heat process meats that the humans ate, potentially but for the most part, it's only been really within the last hundred years or so that they could even get anything else. And so if, again, if we, if we look at that terrain, that, that evolutionary and historical terrain, we start to draw a picture about what probably makes sense when it comes to nutrition, all for people and for dogs.
0: Yeah. Because, you know, when you sort of tell people to feed a you know, biologically or species appropriate diet for say your cats and dogs. They'll ask you, how do you translate that in today's today's world? You know, uh, you know, um, they're like, I can't, and it's always to do with geographic location as well. For instance, mm. yeah. in Singapore, we are a tiny island. We have no agricultural land. We're not farm. You know, everything is imported into the country. Um so the you know like in the US where you can work with your hunters or you can go hunting for food, yeah. You can get you can shoot an elk right? and butcher it yourself, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, yeah. um things like that. Uh it's it's so much easier for you know for your geographic location over there. Whereas for us, uh, for our local community, when you tell them species appropriate diet, they'll be like, what chicken? Because <laughs> yeah. the only thing they can think of is like, oh, if I wear some chicken in the old days in the in the village, you know, uh, before modernization of Singapore, people would have chickens roaming around, you know, on on uh, their 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 little farms and stuff. But if you're talking about or fish, because we're an island nation, so seafood is is um, popular because you know can go and fish so for our locals when you tell them like is it is it good enough for them to just feed chicken is that
1: that healthy enough so that i mean here's here's the great news right if if you want to give your dog some chicken you're, you're not moving backwards but if the question is hey what constitutes a sustainable form of nutrition over the lifetime of a dog, then you have to bring in other considerations. Uh, And there's a little thought experiment that I always find helpful. It applies to humans and dogs. If you were stranded on a ship in the middle of the ocean or stranded on an island in the middle of the ocean, and you could only pick one food to live on the rest of your life, what would be the one food that you could pick that would allow you to survive? right? And there's really only one answer. It's meat, right? So it's a red meat, some form of red meat, right? It could be a bison. It could be an elk. It could be a cow. It could be a deer, right? It couldn't be a chicken and it couldn't be a fish, right? It could be a seal, right? It doesn't mean it couldn't come from the sea. Point being is that you have to have something that has the sufficient macronutrient and micronutrient composition that would allow you to survive in perpetuity off of just one food item. And so that's not suggesting that there shouldn't be a variety of foods uh, in our diet as humans or, or in our dog's diet, um, but it does offer us some insight when we consider what is the preeminent food that would comprise the majority of, of their nutrition. If dogs wanna eat fish or chicken or you know something else, it's not going to move them backwards. If that was exclusively their, uh, their meal program, you could see some potentially see some de- uh, deficiencies, micronutrient deficiencies develop, you know, it could take years, My- uh, micronutrient deficiencies are not easy to develop. They do take time. Uh, but if all you fed your dog was fish, you might see some low bite vitamin B, things like that. Yeah.
0: Cause you know, I'm thinking like if Singapore, if I was to rewind time, say 100 years 200 years ago And we were You know Not modernized And truly a Village in an island
1: mm-hmm.
0: A stray dog For instance Or even a stray cat They would be hunting In the jungle Or you know The wildlife Where They would Probably have A variety of things From rodents To rabbits right. To I don't know If they'll eat snake But you oh, know uh, seen dogs You know yeah, or you remember, pigs dogs are Or wild balls too. Or something Mm. Uh, you know yeah so that that's 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 a good point because I get this question from pet parents sometimes when you know trying to to switch them to a raw food diet and not all the time say they are willing to spend on a commercial raw food product because it costs it's more expensive yeah. you know so so i I usually have to try and and and, and help them think of like, More economical ways of mixing and matching, you know, of, uh, you know, like, you know, like what what is easy for them to buy, say, from the market, you know, um, like from the butcher, for instance. So, you know, probably Chinese people will eat pork, Malays don't eat pork uh, Mm -hmm. because it's not halal. So, so for Malays, Muslims, I think the correct term is for Muslims uh, who don't eat pork. Then you know if, if they're not willing to feed pork, then it will be chicken. It will be lamb, mm. mutton, because that's what yeah. they normally. Because they will usually look at their cultural diet as well. Like you know what what I can eat, I will share with my animal. Yeah, you know, but would you say like mutton or lamb? Would would that be too high in fat for?
1: No, not not particularly. And remember, there's a there's a big difference, particularly when it comes to uh, when it comes to dogs there's a big difference on the effect that a cooked fat and a raw fat has on dogs, which oftentimes is something that's sometimes missed because uh, interestingly, people say, you say, hey, do you feed a fresh food diet? Absolutely, I cook for my dog every night, which is an an interesting phenomenon uh, because they feel as if they need to cook for the dog, which in most instances, doesn't harm the dog provided that, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're sufficiently low carbohydrate. But the reality is if you do have fattier meats and you cook them over time, that could lead to some pancreatic distress. Uh, and it's completely unnecessary. The, the, the dogs and cats thrive off the non heat processed foods. They, they don't require a heat process. Um, and so one of the things I think is, is important to know, and unfortunately this isn't established scientifically to the degree that we want, but it's, there's some very good anecdotal case studies that, that show this, which is you can take a dog that, it, that has, um, pancreatitis and you switch them to a fresh food diet, you know, not, not heat process in any way. And you may be feeding them, a, you know, a fattier meat, a ribeye or something like that, or a ground chuck. Uh, and the. The, uh, the CPLI test, which is a, a common standard for assessing pancreatic distress changes, you know, within a week, um, just by, just by moving from cooked fats to uncooked fats. You haven't, you haven't changed yeah. the density from fat. You've changed from fats that undergo heat process to fats that don't. Um, and so that tells you something very important about the nature of fats and the impact that they can have, uh, on a dog.
0: Wow, I'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. Thank you and remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone!